Welcome to Apostrophe Cast. This episode, we hear Davis Schneiderman, recording in collaboration with Don Meyer, reading from his forthcoming novel, Drain. In Drain, we are taken down into the wasted basin once home to Lake Michigan, now the subject of a turf war between worm-worshipping outlaw nomads and the bovine inhabitants of corporate sprawl colonies. If the plot sounds surreal, psychedelic, and darkly hilarious, then it matches the prose, which plunges and leaps in stylish virtuosity. Please enjoy Davis Schneiderman. From the novel Drain by Davis Schneiderman, Northwestern University Press, 2010. This composition by Davis Schneiderman and Don Meyer. An introduction. I have an array of choices before me. Tape the mouth. Cover the head in a nylon sack. Stick a bondage ball down the throat and hog tie the little bitch. Obvious, but outward. Go deeper, though. Inward. Slash the epiglottis with a straight razor. Remove the larynx with the tip of a rusty nail. Soak the tongue in battery acid for a waterfall of acerbic tart. I have an array of choices before me. I scream over the abandoned onion ring baskets and nicked ceramic coffee cups. We'll teach you to keep your trap shut. Tiny hairs on the old biddy's neck curl in sugared puffballs hit with kerosene as my tongue lizard flicks the diner's thick air. My gun barrel explodes with a caustic bang over the Ask me about a free credit check with purchase of a six-pack of candied giblets button stuck tight against her blouse, and this would be a real mess in birdshot. Instead, it's cotton candy melting in the mouth of a sperm whale. Buttonholes wink like stars snuffed tight against the sneeze of a supernova, and she huddles on the floor, a typical quadrilateral lump. No friends, no future. Only fat layers rolling dumbly along an ocean of skin. She's a crystalline leviathan, a flower-dampened fry tart pasted with carbon, harpooned without hook, but with sugar, glorious sweetness. I flick my tongue again, so fast she doesn't get the past tense. Here comes my main man number. Stainless steel comb struck like a divining rod from the radius line of his bleach-blonde afro. Plastic bandolier draping across his white pubescent chest. Here comes my main man number whipping out our largest sugar hose. Together we spray the greasy kitchen of this fleabag diner in surges of multicolored air-spun spooge. Cotton candy was invented by a dentist, gushes Nunn the surliest of our crew. His seersucker three-piece suit is perfectly droll, his fedora hat cocked atop a black-and-white detective profile, his silhouette hips grinding out ultra-smooth saxophone fuck-muck. Hands and knees now, you mucus-snorting quadruped leper. I smack the manager, cowering in the meat core with the flat of our sugar hose. Nothing, our compatriot, rides him out like a pony, his three-musketeer sword dangling in an exclamation point to the linoleum floor. An interesting spectacle since we are all wearing fat Tuesday masks with profane penile noses stabbing outward almost a foot. We rollerblade over the sugared strands with festooned jock straps radiating UV waves that'll give your great-grandbrats the big C half a century hence. 
The last few customers skedaddled an hour ago. The smart ones, as soon as we douse their fried dough balls with streams of human fecal matter pumped from plastic action squirt guns. The no-brainers after we started lighting the tables on fire. An interesting spectacle, but nothing compared to our earlier infamous interventions. Scan the digital record newspaper archive for worm sakes. We're the Farks inbred stepchild. Palestinian fedayeen tromping up the Golan. Uncle Ho's attack gorillas ready to die by any means necessary. We're blackout angels. You're bum rush the asshole with an ice pick of a crew. We're the motherfucking bomb in a neo-Marxist transnational service economy sense of the term. Barnacles, we lingered on the hole of a garbage barge called the Mayflower, steaming with heat lines of rotten eggs and burning milk cartons spitting dioxin gas along the oddly perpendicular streets of our small shantytown. Quadrilateral Commission planned community number four. That's our city, all right. Desiccation. Drier than a Texas pussy in the Gobi, even as the waterless heat of the wildland-urban interface pours itself on the bodies of the sick and disenfranchised. For worm's sakes, of course, cultists still live on the edge of town. They bake in this existential oven like non-perishable botulism-infested soup cans. See them around these parts sprawled on discount prayer mats, foreskins pressed to the fire-eaten ground of old Lake Michigan. Ever since the 2012 rise of this miserable quadrilateral shithole replaced their own tiny settlement, whatever the fuck it was called. Don't believe in zombies until you've watched these shits burrowing in dilapidated ice houses, boarded up mud basements, burnt out eyeballs of their now windowless bodegas. Manuvarian cultists linger, pre-salted slugs on the edge of everything, never moving, except in curls of white brack fading along the edge of our perfect little quadrilateral community. We live in a dry hole joke that everybody knows but nobody gets, which amounts to the same thing. The whole town runs on a bureaucracy of dunces. It's enough to make your best IBM punch cards become somebody else's hand-crank cinema Yup. The quadrilateral city of desiccation fumes and stinks and rots just outside the cultist town once called by the Manuvarian name of I fucking remember now for worm's sake because it's so damn pedestrian, Father Benjamin. Named after some grand wizard boobah shithead, a so-called patriarch of the first five families, a stone-blind coprophage with legendary erectile dysfunction. A few doltish Manuvarians still mourn his stinking, fetid corpse and wash themselves with equal parts spit and come according to the principle. Stupid, brainwashed pricks can't separate the products of their body from the cheap crystal meth of a drainage ditch. Enough generalities. You want topographies. Location. Our beautiful little village of desiccation rests seven nautical miles south-southeast of the old Beaver Island in the lake bed's northeast corner, near the Straits of Mackinac. You know, the Straits pinching that almost isthmus separating old Lake Michigan from Lake Huron. An enormous hand crushing the horizon between thumb and forefinger. Dutch elm trees fucked by cold sores and poisoned sumac. Rolls of dried up wheat prematurely smashed into unleavened flatbread. A grammar school class cranked on half-moon tablets passed inside the mouth by tongue-ringed cretins at a three-day rave. 
all sacrificed to the crunch of fingers rubbing an array of dildos spotted with giant giraffe skins, secreting creamy ejaculate between two pillowcases as middle-class moms and dads try desperately to explain birth control. Steely Dan 12 from Yokohama, hello. On a post-American bullet train ringing the old Lake Michigan dry hall, a Japanese tourist with business suit and hardcore porno comic book rubs himself against the metal pole handrail, goes off over a contour map of the region, creams some purple mountain majesties like he were Mechagodzilla in a Nolan's hoe house. That's where we're from, motherfuckers. Now towel yourselves off. Fauna. Fantastic battery-powered desiring machines that we shove up the anus with metal cucumbers to remind us of cybernetic griffins and animatronic unicorns roaming the wildland urban interface. Makes the power lines shake and shimmy. What the fuck? We live in a dried-up lake bed for worm's sakes. Here, emptiness takes its own phylum. Disposition. Blood-sucking intestinal parasites shit from the ancient sphincter of a Galapagos tortoise. So we hide Blackout Angel's secret headquarters in a rundown house at the terminus of the most out-of-the-way perpendicular block. A manicured lawn shot to shit with half-baked polychrome elves. The bloom of a million brilliant dandelions. The floor slanted, a putrid Eden kitchen framed on the exterior by noisy blue shutters that clack, 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 even after the wind dies down to the breath of lousy nothing. We wear bright and bouncy day-glow leotards. We grew up here on our own. We have no parents. We are not Peter Pan wild boys. We can see the future and the cut-up montage of our own memories thread through the eye of a Tin Pan Alley songbook. The end of the Manuvarians, the song of the paper dodo. And so we mock the rituals of their sacred world worm, their graven idols of this hoary umus segnus formed from patties of salty mud. But we also abuse your disarming little products. Self-cleaning toilet bowl plungers, fragrant plugins spiced with artificial cinnamon candles oriented in a goat's head pentagram on the slats of our splintered floors. Don't think that we are on your side. We dump a truckload of toaster ovens and cheap Taiwanese electron guns into a series of carefully chosen bathtubs, just for the kick of watching your face contort with a banshee moan. Muggles, is that you, little foofy dog? Why not fetch mommy a highball on the rocks? My god, you're not muggles. Help, police, I'll blow my rape whistle if you don't put down that toaster and you know who the police will believe in this type of er situ. Oh, I see. You have every intention of putting down the toaster. If you think this will advance the desires of your species and class consciousness, ah! Zap, sizzle, zap, sizzle. The other landlords complain they've never had punks so brazen. Furtive whispers under ambient streetlights. Power lines streaming into above-ground swimming pools collapsed from the weight of incandescent algae strewn over rotten cardboard sheeting. Corrugated nighttimes. Toxic disaster. We've had a lot of different people here, but we've never had punks. So the manager tells us while black power number, white as a bleached sheet, dismounts from the poor schlub's bony back. Lady Godiva wants her fucky-fuck, I scream. The sugar-coated biddy lifts her boss from his humiliating crouch. 
I squirt feces into the coffee maker, the deep fryer, the heat lamp in one satisfying arc, but can't help but feel a bit sorry for these schmoes. After all, they didn't choose to become sycophantic peons in a self-promulgating capitalist Ponzi scheme. Not at first, anyway. No, they probably transitioned so gradually from dupes to post-pubescent S&M addicts that they can't help but raise their assholes in heat at the finely oiled proboscis of the quadrilateral machine. Nothing, unsheathing his sword with 18th century flourish, doesn't have any second thoughts. He slashes the tape, smashy-smashy as the front of the large packing crate comes down to release a gaggle of genetically mutated rats. We've starved them for weeks, he says absently. They'll bust a nut at the first whiff of sweetener. Fangs gleam like knives. Maybe a dentist can grow you some new skin, if the rats leave any bones, that is. When we sleep with tape recorders, we get electric dreams. Recording a tape. Washington Jefferson Lincoln Key's life is a lot like. Winding through the nimble corridors of the Quadrilateral Commission Regional Transit Authority train, on return from the vibrating lavatory, Key considers the progenitors of his triple names. One. The founder of the Republic, stately, plump, buck mulligan, wooden toothed. Two. A red-haired slave owner pulling the old Sally Hemings stick and jab. And three. The great emancipator himself. Oh, yes. Honest Abe dream wanders the White House a week before Ford's theater. Nine feet high, floating room to room past sobbing women, their faces covered with soiled veils. To the Oval Office, finally, where Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton bends over an enormous casket overflowing with aerated land-grant dirt. His mouth becomes a wavy string. The President is dead, Mr. President. Abe's insides turn to jelly, while Key, deep in the future, lets the train car rattle through his intestines. What would Abe Lincoln's stiff figure make of Key's world in 2039, 172 years later, in this empty lake bed once called Lake Michigan? Flush with ruddy loam, his skin-cracked feet might sink in a dream of lucid topsoil. Why, Abe had set every last one of us free in the right to earth circumstances. Key cues the recording from inside his train berth, applies his headphones, and plays back morning sounds on auto-repeat. An antique porcelain box chipped on a runaway comet. Meandering through the reverse umbra of apparent solar noon, the breath of our ancient stench born from the zero, the mushroom cloud, the spore, followed closely by the repetitive cough, recording a tape, the gurgling chant of raw throat pushed through his earbuds like the birth of a fat, colicky baby. These noises, all noises really, remind the triple-named Washington Jefferson Lincoln Key of his long-missing presumed dead twin sister, Hayes Garfield Fillmore Key, preempting Lincoln into this world by 8.53 minutes on August 23, 2008. Approximately 2,700 days after Lake Michigan drained through the suddenly emancipated gates of the Ogala water table, a fjord crumbling under the breath of some Norse god's halitosis. 
Keys cilia vibrate through paper mucus. With large enough amplification, this cough, this hacking blood, could become the drainage of old Lake Michigan. Sounds of that first dry day, firecracker fish flailing under a brilliant sun, water plants belching black oil soup. Fillmore Key never bought that Big Bang Theory, not for drainage, not for the fires. Nothing is sudden, little brother, not the start of the world, not the end of the day, little brother. Her mouth in memory forms choppy sentences. These fires oppose the waters of old Lake Michigan, just as we all oppose the fires with the water content of our bodies. That's the only liquid we have now, little brother. Fillmore is pure, steady state, constant always those many years ago, meandering through evergreen knots outside the perimeter of their town, Calibration, the perfect town, Bottom of the lake bed, north of Michigan City, Indiana, the post-American frontier. The tape reverses itself with a scratching breeze. Look deeply into the sizzling core, little brother. Watch it feed insatiably on the scrub. Do you know what the fire is, Lincoln? It's... It's obscure, vague, and undifferentiated. There's nothingness between two brackets. A shadow on the neck of the sun. A memory from a vacuum, perhaps, sucked from Lincoln's nostrils and burnt green sputum. The hue of brilliant ochre, sand, sepia wind and swirling vapor, dry dust amassing in his lungs. Fillmore, absent from their 11th year, May 2019, surrounded in those final moments by covens of mayfly, differentiated thrips, conglomerated twisted wing insects, alderflies, wasps, earwigs and walking sticks, all swarming in drunken flutters, wadding the crevices of her burning body. No one's still alive to remember her, and so Fillmore dies again, Nothing but tired old playback. Sighing, he reaches in his travel bag and opens a small cedar box. The few remaining pictures are distributed carefully among a variety of hard drives and broken stereoscopes, microfiche, and digitized Viewmaster stock. She looks exactly as he does today, positively pallid. Weeks before she burns, and oh how she burns, they attend a mandatory sock hop at Calibration Middle School. Fillmore scrawls on the back of the picture, Dance at the Gym 2017, and when Key inhales the yellowed photograph, he can still summon the multicolored cray paper streamers of an underseat joke. Fillmore in plaid schoolgirl skirt, plain white bobby socks, her lips purse into a fishy oval, oxygen fails to reach her lungs, her silky brown hair cascades around a pasty figure, Arms hang thin and stringy over her underdeveloped chest. The print glows translucent like grease from a backyard cookout through a paper plate membrane. Somehow, Key knows, when he looks at this old picture, she is not there at all. She shines, then fades, a single beam of light on the rim of a black hole. Tall dune grass disappearing in the bloody blades of the thresher. Word falling. Ventriloquist tape dream. Spring 2019. Photo falling. You slipped out the uterus after me, 
and I turned to see, for my first sight, mind you, a pale little snake wriggling with difficulty into the waiting forceps. Fillmore projects a toy laser pointer over the hide of a pale jackrabbit, turning a green glowing gray in the soup of a boiling sun. Quite horrid, little brother, little brother. I certainly do not remember. For worm's sakes, little brother, little brother. The fire started only in 2005, my arse. That's just the first year that idiot fulcrum maneuvers and his dumbass cultists could see what was already here, you dig? Don't tell me you think that all of Lake Michigan emptied in a matter of seconds. Ooh, yes, says magic fulcrum maneuvers man. One moment Lake Michigan bubbled and churned, a primeval ocean in the midst of a moon-inspired gale, a freshwater sea set ruddy from shipping detritus. The next, so the worm says, yes, the worm, poof, gone, nothing. If you were to close your eyes and look directly at the sun, Lincoln, if you were to bicycle under a canopy of old elm trees at just the right speed, so the sunlight filters through the leaves and branches at a certain stroboscopic rate, well, by the time you open them, the whole thing is empty, gone, dry as a friggin' bone. Why, my loyal subjects who have followed me unto the desert of our discontent, this dearth is a miracle of nature. I tell you, for worm's sakes, the will of Uma Cygnus. Yeah, right. And then five years later, 2005, my brother, just when everyone, the disenfranchised maneuverians and the numb denizens of mainland post-America got comfy, the ground ignites into spontaneous combustion. And burns with the same intensity for 19 years? Sure, and if you light up my farts here, some joker in the Andromeda galaxy will see the heat signature of my brother, my brother. She pirouettes a candy store top. Let me ask you, little brother, little brother, do you think this world will burn forever if it only started in 2005? Key stops the recorder, rewinds, falls back into present time, 2039. Smoldering rubber and acetate-soaked palmetto fans scorch the lower interface scrub. A great fire, no, a labyrinth of fires, no, a series of great fires in serial repetition, enough to consume old Chicago like a used-up matchstick, hundreds of miles wide, thousands of feet high, mountains of ash smoking in deliberate arabesques, curtains of perpetually boiling soot, the horizon fires eat themselves, grotesque Saturn devours his children and drools bone marrow onto the earth below. What really happened that day? Oh, little brother, little brother. Fillmore's low-slung back watches the horizon swell like a thick berry, thunderous butterfly wings in translucent and smoking patterns, oranges overtaking yellow fields of buttercup burn, closer over the months to their town, their home, their bodies. Twirling spiral jets soaring over margarine fields of flickering goldenrod and a gloaming tower of Babel, higher than even Fillmore could imagine. The flames hang on the verge of eternal collapse, an electric tidal wave poised to smother calibration. Even now, remembering the fires, Lincoln Key's epiglottis chokes from smoke poisoning.
Hayes Garfield Fillmore Key, attuned to these peculiar rhythms, sees the collapse of the old world, yellow cities crackling into a hellish bonfire falling upon itself, swirling dried brambles scorching through her sinuses. Soon, maybe tomorrow, the fire comes for them, for their parents, and so, a paper bag. Fillmore fills with smoke, a ball of pulsing hack distending into a cloud. Her eyes go smoky, the hue of nautical wind, mucus blasts from her orifices and warps of magnificent daylight speckled with deep orange flakes. Covered in sticky discharge, bravely she lifts from the ground. Fillmore jumps, dives, splashes into zooming flame, disappears into the undulating heat as Lincoln follows her lips across slow, undulant rivers. When you sleep with tape recorders, you get electric dreams, little brother, little brother. The trembling landscape dissolves into margarine fire bleed. When you sleep with tape recorders, cue muscle memory. A shadow on the neck of the sun, little brother, little brother. Headphones breathing, little brother. All he has left is the tape clicks, little brother, to catch on the ruddy twists of his lungs, little brother. And on the ground, his knees scrape and bloody, his head tilted up into the eyes of the sun, tearing and steaming as Fillmore fades into the gas and char and bloody smays of little brother, pools of silver flashing fire spots, little brother, Fillmore no more. Lincoln Key's mouth is hot, passing a plug of bloody mucus like an impacted tooth across the lip of his lower larynx. The headphones rattle, recording a tape. Thank you for listening. Please join us next episode for J.A. Tyler.